It's impossible to replicate. Impossible. Yeah. With wow. that type of paint, you would need to be a you would need to be the guy that did it in the first place to be able to do it again, and that guy probably couldn't do it. You're listening to the Vint Podcast, bringing you expert interviews, alternative market insights, and exclusive access to the world of wine and spirits investing. Enjoy the show. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Vint Podcast. My name is Brady, and I'm joined by Billy. We'll also have Buster Schur on the podcast for the second time. We had him join us last year and talk about collectibles and museum quality artifacts and technology. And I think we're going to have a good conversation to share with you all today around that. But since we're now getting into the middle of January 2023, we wanted to do our quarter four overview. We just had our quarter four report come out. It should have been out now last week as of the launch of this episode. So I wanted Billy to give a little bit of overview of what we saw in quarter four and yeah, what we expect out of the wine market in the first part of this year. Yeah. So very quickly, yeah, the quarter saw a bit of a bit of slowing down among the pace of the growth. The LiveX 1000 was up over 13% in 2022, which was great. The last quarter saw almost 1% growth. And then across the other underlying indices, we either saw things remain relatively flat, somewhere up a percent, somewhere down a little bit, nothing out of the band of about 5% either way. Um, And a lot of this kind of a little bit of consolidation and slowing down towards the end of the year was a result partially of continued interest rates rising, other economic factors. But what's interesting and good to keep in mind is it was up the whole year 13% in a year that most of the major equity markets were down 20%. So that's really good to see. And it's basically not only was it an inflation hedge, it was a way to make money. So a little bit of a slowdown is actually and occasionally times here is a bit of a way to catch your breath going into the holiday season. A lot of, especially on LiveX, which where these numbers are from, are B2B merchants who tend to purchase a little bit earlier in the year. And then when it comes down to November, December, that's when they're actually selling a lot of the goods that they bought direct to consumers. So it's not unheard of to have some of these quarters get a little slower towards the end of the year as well. Yeah, I was talking with the investor the other day. We were talking about trends in the consumer market and how much of an effect that has maybe on the space and the assets that we deal in. Because it might be easy to assume that, hey, quarter four of the holidays, people buy a ton of wine, Christmas, New Year's, Thanksgiving. But that doesn't necessarily, that's not a one-to-one factor on the performance of the upper tier of the assets that we're working with here. It's more related to some of those B2B transactions. Yeah, yeah. It's not like the top tier, but there are times where it's something that's maybe a, a little bit more affordable, maybe something in what, the four to $600 range, like, mm-hmm. like a lot to most people, maybe some of higher net worth people are buying or they're sharing that with a group of people for holidays. So it's not unheard of for people to buy that. But if a B2B person is buying wine in the idea that they're going to sell it in the holiday period, they're purchasing months ahead of time and they're having their stock on hand. So it doesn't really directly translate to a lot of these numbers. And then the other part is sometimes what you would see at the end of the year would be some of the Asian markets, especially the Chinese market, buying ahead of the Chinese New Year. And they would buy Mm -hmm. wines that are, you know, that same year or certain ones that are maybe 10 years older, they're a certain vintage to mark the occasion. And that that brings me into some of the 2023 stuff is we hadn't seen as much of that because gatherings weren't really capable of happening in China due to their zero COVID policy for a while. So this is the first year that's really ramping back up. And that was only dropped in December by surprise. Some of those sales that may have been there in the past weren't necessarily there as well. But looking into 2023, that Hong Kong especially is going to be, that's the hub of wine trading. It was migrating over to Singapore while that was closed. It's now back open to travel, back open to hospitality as well as easier trade. So it'll be really interesting to see what the reopening of China and Hong Kong has an impact on the market, mm-hmm. as well as just other, the main macroeconomic factors that are impacting other things. Um, but luckily, Vint in our model is so well positioned for many types of boom or slowdown situations. If the market is a little slow, a little flat, and people are king stock of what they have, maybe a few people are exiting some positions, we're positioned perfectly to take advantage of those. For On, on one side, our model is to hold our wines for an extended period of time. We have no selling pressure. So we're in 
we don't feel any need to sell in any way in a downturn or a slowdown. Not saying that's necessarily going to happen, but if there were, we're perfectly positioned to be buyers in those markets. So we're always right. looking for value. Anytime if somebody needs to exit for whatever reason, and we're able to see on our, our kind of dashboards here that there's a wine that we've been tracking for a while that's at a price below what we would consider fair market value. We'll snap it up and be able to offer it to our investors that pass that down. Yeah, obviously we love momentum. And I think we rode a lot of that momentum in the six distributions that we made over the past year. We were able to almost double the LiveX index in terms of value that we returned for investors percentage. And so momentum is great. It allows us to possibly outperform indices on an annual basis if that trend continues. But like you said, because we take that value investing approach, we're always well positioned to at least mirror what the broader market is doing in terms of the assets that we bring to our platform. So I think the people should be really excited for this year. We don't want to paint it as if quarter four, the market dipped and tanked the way that some of these other asset classes have. It really hasn't. It's just a slowing of momentum, something that could definitely pick back up as we yeah. head in 2023. And I'd also like to note that the sources... The source for data for this report in particular was the LiveX Exchange, which is based in Europe. It is the largest platform for wine trading in the world. So it provides the best snapshot, which is the best way to give you the macro view. But something that Vint does as well is, I mean, it, this, I guess this doesn't take into account of all the nuances of pricing throughout the world. So what right. we do on our side is we're working to create our own fair market value, which takes into account some prices from Wine Searcher and LiveX and some other things that give a full picture. One, of what the price is. Two, when you're looking at LiveX, those prices are down if they were down or they're level or they're up based on GBP and the performance in their market, the price in GBP at the time. And it doesn't take into account the FX fluctuations, which we're able to take advantage of. Yeah. So some of these wines late July, August, when the pound was in the tank, we were able to purchase some wines for collections that we launched last year and some that are coming up this year that maybe while their performance in GBP may be at a certain right. line, that's not going to impact necessarily the value of our collections because we were able to source effectively. So that stuff is like totally outside of the macro environment, right? It doesn't matter what the macro environment is like. If there are 1% here, 3% here, 5% here to take on FX changes or like other arbitrage opportunities in terms of like, price dislocation between markets and other inefficiencies, mm -hmm. something that can exist regardless of the broader macro outlook and is always an opportunity for a company that purchases in extremely high volumes and also holds a high volume of assets that we could potentially sell into the market. So yeah, I think those are all good points for positioning us and our investors can read more. They can read the quarter four report, which like I said, should have went out to platform users. If you, for some reason, didn't get it, we should have it up on the on the platform at some point. But in, in any event, you can always email Billy or I to pick that up. Our contact information is in the show notes. So yeah, thanks Billy for the overview there. Yeah, we I guess we can transition into talking about our guests that we have on today. We have Buster Schur, who we, as we maybe mentioned in the beginning, and we definitely talk on the pod today, is that we had him at the earlier, I guess it was maybe March or so of last year, February. It was early on, early remember. days. Yeah. yeah, about like this. So I think it would be cool to, he's a great guest to have annually. I think it's probably something that we'd like to do each year. He has great perspectives on the internet economy, creator economy, technology just as a whole. And uh, we talk a good amount in this episode about AI, alternative assets and collectibles, museum quality collectibles, and some of the things that he's passionate about collecting and that he has collected in 2022. A wide gamut of things, not always about wine, but I think always about topics, people who are interested in maybe like contrarian investing themes or alternative asset markets will really like to have in their back pocket as we yeah. move into this new year. Yeah, yeah. I would just add to that, that he's I guess what we like to have on the podcast is people on obviously giving background on, on wine and things you may not hear about, but also people on the forefront of alternative investments and investing. And he's really a pioneer in pushing forward a lot of these different asset classes. So it's like a rising tide floats all ships. The conversations that he's having yeah. around different topics directly relates to our category in the sense of the macro investing, creating new asset classes and, and adding validity to asset classes. So it's really mm -hmm. exciting. But oh, one thing he really lot. likes... Oh, go on. Yeah, I'd say yeah. a lot of the ways that he views maybe some of the asset classes that we're not involved in, like museum quality assets, maybe, which is signatures and things like that, might not be 
the same asset category, but a lot of the considerations are the same in terms yeah, of authentication. Sourcing and yeah, all of that. But the first part of the episode, we talk a good amount about AI and OpenAI's new product, that, not new product, but product that has been taking the internet by storm, ChatGPT, which Buster will share a little bit more about. It's basically an intelligence software that you can put in basically any input. You can ask it a question. You can tell it to write you just say a story or a blog post, and it will bring together information that it has from other inputs and answers that have been stored in or logged into it and can spit out a ton of content very quickly. I had it write Buster's intro for the podcast today. I thought that he would get a kick out of that. So I'll just end this intro by reading the introduction to Buster that ChatGPT wrote for us. And so it says, welcome to the Vint Podcast. Today, we're joined by Buster Schur, a highly respected and accomplished professional in the content and digital media space. With his strong background in sports media and passion for collectibles, Buster has established himself as a go-to expert in the industry. In addition to a successful career hosting a variety of sports-related media shows, Buster is also known for his impressive collection of historical documents and museum-worthy artifacts. We're thrilled to have Buster on as our guest and can't wait for you to hear more about his experiences and insights in the world of content, digital media, and technology. Thanks for joining us, Buster. That was awesome. Yeah, that's pretty cool. All right, here's the interview. Hey, Buster, thanks for joining us for a second time on the Vint Podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's been a it's been a pretty crazy year in terms of you just heard an intro written by ChatGPT, OpenAI's project. I think that was the bombshell at the end of the year that kind of came out and had everyone excited. It's been a crazy year around technology, creator economy, collectibles, all those kinds of things. Can't wait to get into that with you. Let's do it. What so what's your response overall to this this AI project trying to maybe replace Google, replace the way that we learn, communicate, surf the internet. Is that how you view it or do you view it in a different way? Yeah, I view it as the next evolution of Google. And I don't know if this is the product that replaces Google or Google's product is the product that replaces Google or there's other products that aren't out yet. I know for every chat GPT, there's a dozen, two dozen other projects very similar to it. They were just the first to market. Maybe the others are better, maybe they're worse. That will be to be determined. So I definitely think for the written word, this is world changing, groundbreaking, like it will eliminate billions of jobs, maybe. Wow. I'm going to change the world economy. The art side of it, I think is corny. Like I see everybody doing the same image. Everything looks alike. And when (laughs) the difference between the written word in AI and art in AI is pretty intense because the art AI, when using a lot of these programs, it feels like everybody trying to copy the big five artists of the era. Whereas with written, it's so much more prompt and nuance based that you can actually have something unique because there it's not a style you can actually change the style. Whereas with a lot of these AI images, everything that I see online looks the same. And if, and I think too, if everybody has access to something, it desensitizes everybody to it, A, and B, it makes nobody want it. Like people will, will want something that is original and hasn't been done before. That's what yeah. made Picasso Picasso. It's what made Warhol and not the 400,000 artists who have tried to copy those, those characters. Whereas for the written word, it has the power to amplify basically everything everybody is doing in every gen. Replace yeah, a yeah, lot of I, asked, I asked a Chuck GPT to when I asked it to write the intro for you at the beginning of the pod, it was flat and I was like, make it more energetic and exciting. And so it interjected all these different vocabulary in and was like the incredible, like unparalleled, that sort of thing. So yeah, I think that's really cool in terms of being able to manipulate the style so easily. It's I'm waiting for the first book to come out. Yeah, I've seen some, I've seen some written books, mostly like children's books and things like that, that have already been mm. the, all the art and words are done by AI and that stuff is cool. But yeah, I think where it's really going to get crazy is when that can combine with deep fakes and like full body movement in content. I saw somebody mm. at CES said that it was going to replace 90% of creator content within eight years. Wow. Um, so that would basically eliminate the creator economy, oh. which is interesting and gives 
it's funny this like way that things have gone. So 20 years ago, all the power was in the hands of the production studios and the networks and people like that who had infrastructure to be able to build and produce lots of shows. Then the power dynamic completely shifted back to the creator. And based on the information I have today, it seems like it's going to go all the way back in the other direction and the production studios are going to have the power again for how can they produce high volume of content without real people. And when you get rid of the creators, there's no need for that talent anymore unless they have deep infrastructure and pockets to be able to develop things like this. It's basically going to crush the entire economy. So that is it's going to be interesting to follow over the next decade. Yeah, I think something that's interesting about it too is the more that it's adopted, the more that we're giving it the learning and the power to continue to evolve and become this powerful thing. So it's interesting. It's like a tool we're using now, but then eventually it'll be a tool that is not using us, but creating and pushing us out of certain industries. So I think that's interesting. So how does, how would you say your passion for AI kind of overlaps with your passion for collectibles and that, that type of space that you're also so deeply in? It's been interesting juxtaposition between the physical world and a signed letter by like George Washington and your NFT kind of space as well. I think it's kind of sits right in the middle. Yeah. AI is just going to help everything. So I wouldn't say there's like a crossover specific to collectibles. I think there's just a crossover in every profession, job, career in the world. It completely changes the businesses that make up the hobby or make up collectibles. But yeah, it's going to be it's going to be pretty crazy. I'm just, I'm excited about it. Honestly, I think change is inherently exciting. That's how I felt early social media days. And it's how I feel now about AI going forwards. And it can be overwhelming at times because so much is happening all at once and people are changing their entire businesses, but that's what you have to do. And the people who win are the people who change the fastest and adapt these sort of things. So even since we last talked, I officially launched my agency and we use all these tools for the companies hmm. that we work with. And it's powerful. Whereas 10 years ago, we would have needed copywriters and idea specific people that we don't need now. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Also, from my point of view on the AI, I think I'm excited about it from a wine nerd kind of side is that the gate gateway to wine knowledge has always been super, super tall, I guess. It's always been a high bar to cross, whether you're trying to go to a some of these publication sites that are all pay to view or you have to read some specific critic or get a wine book. Like now you, you could Google about certain areas, but it would always be somebody kind of writing a blog and you never really knew about it. I think now this would put the fingertips or put information of the whole wine world at the fingertips. I mean, if I want to know about Chateauneuf de Pop and describe the wines a little bit more, it can give me more information rather than me having to like put together these weird disparate array of information. So from that's my wine side, that's what I'm pretty excited about. Yeah, that's an interesting nuance. I think there's going to be a lot of that in a lot of different industries. And I also think that the biggest people always talk about like the biggest jobs that it's going to kill. I think the biggest job that AI is going to create is the career of the prompter. Mm -hmm. Because every AI tool needs a prompter. Every company will have to hire that position that currently doesn't exist today. And though smart companies will hire dozens of prompters and you just have them like prompting away all day on a computer AI models to create things for the business and new ideas to prevent present to the heads of departments that is going to be fascinating. So there will be wine prompt in mm -hmm. the near future. And I think the companies that excel are going to be, or the publications that excel for that matter, are going to be the ones that have wine prompters on staff. Yeah, for me, content seems like, content's the low-hanging fruit of this, right? Copy and things like that. But could we see staying on the wine thing, maybe the next 10 years, you're in the winery and you ask it, hey, what blend should we put together given the specific location we're at? in France and like the weather information that we have and like other data, is that like a possible reach where it would move into, you know, creation, not just like piecing the other ideas, but of taking things that aren't yet that are out in the physical world and using information to put them together, like a wine, like blending a wine. Yeah. That technology exists today. It's just not out in the public. Yeah. Google mm. has that tech. Even OpenAI has that. They're already two models ahead of what's public. Sure. You know, that makes that, sense. That, that tech exists. Yeah. It's just well, that's it, not public yet. Yeah. And then the more that, again, going back to AI learning, like if you're in a winery, as you go through the winemaking process, there's so many times you send wines to a lab and there's specific breakdown of 
every element that's in the wine is there. It'll be interesting as they start feeding this into AI down mm-hmm. the line. I'm thinking about it as, so say there was a vintage that was a cooler vintage and Robert Parker described it as X. As they start having these cooler vintages run through the system, they'll be able to actually start saying, cool, this was like this year. So then we'll describe the wine this way. And then they can start actually putting out wine reviews and ratings without even having to have a human involved. I think that one will always have a human element, but I think it'll be interesting to kind of juxtapose because they're already trying to do tell you how a wine's going to just taste based on its flavor notes. I think it's going to be cool for wine reviews as a whole. Yeah, it'll be interesting. The question then is, why would somebody read a publication if they can mm-hmm. just AI it themselves? That's going to be interesting. What's the answer to that? From they're going to have to drink it themselves. That's going to um, be the answer. <laughs> yeah, I think the feedback model will be very important in a niche specific scenario like that. So does somebody do it? Try it? Does the AI model reward in some capacity that feedback with sense of its legitimacy? Like soon all of these products are going to cost money. AI, for example, is burning millions of dollars a day because they don't charge people. So in the future, maybe it rewards people with credits for searches. I think it costs like 0.003 cents per search, but it's, it's interesting. But yeah, I think that in that specific example, it would need to be feedback-based. There are too many nuances with like, imagine the uh, taste of wine on that day and location <laughs> for yeah. an AI model to just know that from the internet because nobody's uploading. So we jumped right into it, but could you give our listeners a little just high level, simple, what is say chat GPT in particular and what the AI we're talking about is just in case. Yeah, it's artificial intelligence based search model. So you search things up and it gathers all the data from the internet and gives you the best answer. And the best way to explain it is you can ask it, give an introduction in the voice of Dwayne The Rock Johnson from his younger career. And it'll do that accurately based on all the information that's out there on the internet. Yeah. So it's just like an open field. You literally can type this prompt. It's not like Google where you just have a search bar and you search something. You literally have like a it almost looks like an open word doc and you just kind of like type in what you want. So yeah. And it's, pretty- it's owned by a few different people. It actually started out as a charity, a nonprofit, and then it mm-hmm. turned into a for-profit with some of the ownership carrying over to the nonprofit subsidiary. Stoff took a big stake in it. They're trying to acquire 50% of it as we speak. And yeah, it'll be interesting. The other sort of big news story in technology space maybe was, I guess, in the investment space as well, is just crypto winter that we're heading into. It seems like losing a ton of value over the last, I guess, 12 to 16 months. Has that affected any of your other projects? As I know last time we were on, we talked about your utility mic NFT projects and some of the things that you're involved with there. What's your perspective on that alternative asset and the ecosystem around cryptocurrency and that technology? Yeah, I don't think it's surprising given everything else that's happened. Like crypto has followed the cycle of like most big tech companies over the last year. Mm. So, you know, down 60 to 70%. It sounds crazy, but like that's what the metas and Netflixes and heck Apple and Microsoft are down 30, 40%. So I don't think it's uh, that dissimilar. And it's funny, it's like the public commentary, and I don't even have an opinion on this, but the public commentary when crypto is going up is like all the heads of banks and all the politicians are talking (laughs) about how amazing it is and building a future for it. And then when it goes down, they're like, oh, it's a Ponzi scheme. It's just so funny how the market dictates what people at that level say about it. I don't feel one way or another in terms of talking about it holistically because it's done a lot of good for a lot of people and it's done a lot of bad for a lot of people too. So I think I understand the perspective of guys, whether it be Elon Musk or Warren Buffett, who wouldn't buy it all for a quarter, he's publicly said. So I get both sides. But in terms of my own involvement, yeah, I mean, it's reduced the market cap of the entire space by a trillion dollars in less than a year and therefore has reduced a lot of the value of the things that are built on top of it. But it doesn't mean that the technology has changed. The technology has actually only gotten better, better for the environment. And there are a lot of really positive things that have happened. In terms of my own project, nothing has changed. It's a long-term project where it's built on the back of my podcast. And the goal is to reward people over a long period of time more than any other projects do. So that's the fundamentals of which that's based on. And I feel pretty confident we've done a good job of that so far and going to try to continue to do that and take advantage of all the new 
tech and everything out there and try to benefit people that are part of it. This is going to be a mad dash to know that people build during these winters. Like you said, like the technology just keeps getting better. Maybe the, the fake players get flushed out. The bad actors get flushed out during these times and the technology accelerates. Maybe there seems like that momentum that could be created there could intersect with AI. How related is AI and like cr- the crypto space? Not not as familiar with the possible intersections and stuff. Is it just like decentralizing knowledge? What's the is there an interaction there? Yeah, you could definitely make a case for that. I think it's just technology as a whole. Like if okay. like the AI could potentially benefit like the way that cryptocurrencies function, hopefully make it better for the environment across, especially new cryptocurrencies. So yeah, I think there's some benefit there. I will say too, thank goodness for the legal system because so many people in the highs of NFTs and things like that totally scammed audiences for mm-hmm. millions, mm-hmm. thought that they could just get away with it, but now they're going to jail. So thank goodness because it's yeah. it's un- really unfortunate to see when you try to do when you and a lot of people go about things the right way and very publicly and you follow the law and then other people put a big dent in the space and that happens in every industry but I think it happened a lot in NFTs and I'm excited for when NFTs become mainstream because they will in the form of tickets and in the form of other prominent use cases I think IDs could be nfts there are a lot of different things so i'm excited for that to happen and shout out to the legal system (laughs) (laughs) yeah go ahead billy yeah i was just gonna say i think you're spot on there one crypto is about being like decentralized but people say oh it's gonna be regulated now and like crypto is bad it's there were bad actors and the regulation would help flush those out it's not impacting to your point the underlying quality of the technology or their value proposition so it's like i keep telling people it's not a crypto problem that was a corporate governance problem, and there's a a regulation issue on some of these things. So I'm personally pretty excited about that. Um, Brady, what were you going to say there before I kind of shift gears? I forget. I don't know. I was was rambling in my mind about all the ways that I was thinking about the way that crypto could influence the wine space, but I don't really want to go there. I think that our investor listeners are like all these things, even though they're not specifically wine related, they are alternatives to the traditional like public market in terms of the way that we've thought about technology and these things in the past. And so they're always good perspectives to have in your back pocket as like alternative or contrarian investors, maybe to be thinking about, yeah, is crypto dead? Is like, are NFTs here to stay in some form or another? Should I consider investments into AI, these kinds of technologies? We do have a lot of who make a ton of angel investments into technology who are on our platform and they mingle our assets with theirs. Yeah, I think it's all helpful information for investors to have, especially going into this kind of recessionary market. Yeah, on that note, I know you invest in uh, or are interested in a wide range of collectibles, alternative assets. What are you excited about for 2023? Opportunities. I think in times of crisis and panic, as the great Warren Buffett says, whom signatures I collect, he says, fearful when others are greedy and greedy when others are fearful. And that very much applies to the museum quality assets and collectibles. I heard, and this is just like a random side note, I think somebody had mentioned, this is like fourth, fourth hand podcast from podcast from podcast. So one of the podcasts I was new said they heard on somebody interviewed on Joe Rogan that at one point, mammoth bones were dumped into the east because there wasn't enough space at the Museum of Natural History. Do you know anything about that? Slash, is that true? Yeah. So the story is here. Let me. I actually texted a paleontologist about this. Love <laughs> that you knew this. Of course, I thought he might. <laughs> yeah, I'm yeah, gonna you. pull. I'm gonna pull up exactly what I was said by this to from those paleontologists. I said, "Is it true? I can't conceive of, of any reason imaginable." He said, "Yeah, the fossils were apparently." disproved some theories of the curator of the museum at the time. So he dumped them to get rid of the evidence. And then I said, that's insane. (laughs) Think anyone will ever find them? And he said, I think so. There are a couple teams diving after the fossils right now. Reeves is posting updates on the river. Since the bones have been submerged and not exposed to air, they should be preserved. So there we go. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. All you have to do is get through that East River sludge. And I say it's yeah, underneath that's nasty. a lot of sediment. <laughs> you're going to find some dead bodies. You're going to find some couches. You're going to find some like nasty stuff down there. I wouldn't yeah. wish it upon anybody. <laughs> Buster's, that's my futon from 2006. Yeah, probably. 
Awesome. And the opportunity, are you, have you, I guess maybe rather than what you're excited about, what were some of the most interesting things to you that you got last year that maybe were unexpected or you just enjoyed? Yeah, I got a, there are a bunch of things that I thought I got really cheap. I got a Buffett signature, pretty cheap. I got Willie Mays, the catch ticket for one fourth of what I thought it was going to go for in auction. I yes. got wow. a new Lincoln Civil War appointment for half of what I was expecting it would cost. Yeah, there just a lot of people led and stuff. And that's obviously... You don't want to buy at the top or the top of that cycle. Yeah, I think it's good. But all this stuff is, if it's truly museum quality, I have no doubts or concerns that it will go up over a long period of time. How are you storing these items? Or do you um, consign them right away? What's the yeah, yeah. What's the strategy? Depends on the item. I keep stuff in different places. So not everything's all in one place, but usually in safes and temperature controlled rooms and things like that. But it depends on the item and time yeah these buffett signatures what i guess he probably doesn't do that a lot are these just like documents that his signature is on yeah really hard to get a buffett signature i can give you the full rundown if you want to know about the warren buffett sub market yes i think we like we like him that a godfather of value investing that's like the approach we take here too yeah love yeah, to hear. yeah so he lives in omaha in the house that he's done for his whole life he's pretty famous for that but he had a neighbor who obviously liked him and had an idea to make a quick buck at one point 20 years ago and brought a bunch of dollar bills over to his house and buffett <laughs> was like yeah like anytime the light is on come on in and so he brought a bunch of these dollar bills and hundred dollar bills over and buffett signed all of them that's what for the authentic ones that are out there in the market that's all that's where Basically, all of them came from, unless it was like a wow. one-off Berkshire Hathaway shareholders meeting signature, which he would do occasionally. He, he's also signed a few bobbleheads. He owned a minor league baseball team at one point, so he signed some of those. And then he's – what else he signed? And then a few letters. Like the one I have is a letter a pastor wrote him, and he was responding to that pastor. He doesn't respond to any letters, but because this guy was a church figure that he did. And I don't know what Warren Buffett's religious beliefs are actually, but he, yeah, he responded to this guy. The guy asked for a signed photo and Buffett was like, I don't have any photos, but here's a signature. And then signed like a bold Warren E. Buffett signature. And uh, yeah, there's some books signed by Buffett too. Some like Benjamin Graham stuff, because it's obviously his role model. Yeah. That's basically that market in a nutshell. Was this like one of those mega, mega church pastors? Was it like Joel Olstein or something just trying to figure out how to make more money? I don't think so. I don't think so. I think so. it was like a, it was just like a random rural pastor in like Missouri or something like that. Something. Yeah, Kansas. I forget, I forget where it is, where the guy was from, but I, I remember his name's Ken Vogler. So somebody could look it up. <laughs> I think, was it Steve Jobs that did a similar thing? Someone asked for an autograph. He's like, I don't do, I don't do autographs and then signs his name at the bottom mm-hmm. of the. I believe that's his signature. It would be really upsetting if that was uh, secretary, though. <laughs> oh, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> or like an auto pen. <laughs> but the way it looks, like the way the image appears, I actually posted it last week on my podcast page. The way it looks appears to be him. So I hope it is. But yeah, it's yeah, sold. Do in you have any Steve Jobs things? It's sold. I don't have any Steve, but oh, okay. uh, it's sold in RR auctions. So we could actually find that out. Nice. Yeah, I picked up some Robert Parker signature books, which are like very famous wine critic. Oh, that's um, cool. And so I went out and nabbed a few of his books. There are a couple you can find online and they're not super expensive at all. And the signature is like always very much the same. He does like a little star above one of the letters, like in the middle of his name. So they're cool to have. I don't know if anyone will ever care, but I care. So that's all that matters. All you need is more people to care than exist. That's right. I'm going to start using this podcast to get people to collect Robert Parker signatures. It's crazy, man. One of the one of the other things I started collecting since the last podcast we did, or the last time I was on here, is the hand-painted backgrounds from the first season of SpongeBob. Oh, wow. That's Insane. crazy. And I'll tell you my logic behind it, and it is that each background is one of one. They're only about 100 to 150 per episodes. Only the first season was hand-painted. After that, it went digital. So just 1999 episodes. There are 20 episodes A and B. Each episode of SpongeBob, in my estimation, has been seen by a billion worldwide over time, at least a billion people. It's probably been watched billions of times each episode, but I'm, I can say confidently that each first season episode has been seen a billion times. Therefore, my one-of-one artwork has been seen 
1 billion times and makes it more <laughs> recognizable than the majority of art in the Louvre. Wow. That makes sense. That would be true. <laughs> so do you, okay. So how do you back into an interest like that? Do you see online, it's like, oh, we're having this auction and we have these SpongeBob art pieces or were you watching SpongeBob and you say, I wonder how they did that. I'd like to get my hands on it. Also, yeah. how do you value something like that? One of yes. one. Yeah. So my dad's actually an animator. So I've uh-huh. known about animation art my whole life and I've been a fan of it. And then I saw some in Heritage. I think it was Heritage. It might have been somewhere else. And then I met one of the guys who bought one, a giant lot 15, 20 years ago when the auction house that Nickelodeon was working with went bankrupt and the state auctioned a lot of them off. This was a while back. And he basically told me every everything he knew. And uh, I was able to... The great thing about stuff like that is they're so easy to authenticate right? Because A, there's only one of them. So if there's multiple, <laughs> that's an mm-hmm. immediate red flag, but also they're painted. So when you actually see them in person, you can tell that it's painted in a second. And at the price point that they're at, it would be much more expensive to actually develop the skills and paint the thing than to just buy the real thing. Unlike a Abraham Lincoln signature, which obviously it doesn't take a lot of work to just sign his name, but to paint like a full, you know, I can even grab one quick and show you guys. I've got one on the wall here. Let's see. Here, check this out. Peels it off the wall. This is from from Sleepy Time. This is the hand-painted library background. You see the intricacies in the paint? Wow. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Wow. It's insane. You feel like you're in the show. (laughs) Um, Yeah, really. So impossible to fake and very easy to to photo match because you can point to each little dot that matches how it appeared in the actual episode so yeah that's that's how i wow. tied back into that one and yes yeah, are there other shows out. still got my eye out for more i assume this was common practice to paint these backgrounds around that same time period are there other shows that they did this on or is it actually not common so For everything after that, there isn't much. And for that time period, there are others, but they're just not iconic shows. Aren't Mm -hmm. that many iconic animated shows, when you really think about it, from pre-2000. Yeah. There's some Scooby-Doo stuff, but the problem with a lot of these shows, too, is there are so many seasons. There's so many episodes. SpongeBob was just the first season, just 20 episodes. Yeah. So their supply is very low. And I'm sure Nickelodeon huh. kept and still has a lot of them too. The like Rugrats, maybe I was guessing. They had a lot of episodes. So. Yeah, there, yeah that's I, true. There, there might have been some of those. There, the most valuable stuff is old Disney, like the old movie animations and the backgrounds. I saw a Pinocchio one I almost bit on, but I didn't. For me, it needs yeah. to be recognizable. Like I am fairly confident if you showed this to hundreds of millions of people, a lot of people would be able to tell like what that exact frame is from or yeah. And some of mine, I have the actual cells too, not just the background. So the second you see SpongeBob and Patrick, it's like, I think SpongeBob is probably the most, SpongeBob and Pikachu are probably the most recognizable figures in world history in terms of the amount of individuals that could name that person off of an image. I can't think of that many more. Jesus, maybe. Like, I really can't <laughs> think of that many more figures who are more famous than SpongeBob. So that's how I went into that. Yeah, that makes sense. So how did you go back? establishing a fair value in your mind. That's something we have to do with wines occasionally here that are very rare. Yeah. So thankfully there were comps online. So they're able to base some things like stuff like sells from the pilot sold for like 15,000. So I could backtrack from that based on, but then there was also some like personal judgment. So like for me, I thought there's more value in the frame. If it just looks and displays better. The reason I bought this one was like, how great would this look in somebody's library? Okay. Yeah. Whereas like with other ones, you can barely even tell what it's from. And I'd have to tell you that this is from SpongeBob or like I have this one of Plankton. It's him (laughs) sitting on a movie theater seat and you would not know what it was unless I told you. But then when the reason I bought it was because it was at a good price, but also when I tell somebody, they're like, oh, that's crazy. That's so cool. And it's actually from an iconic episode where like, he steals the Krabby Patty secret formula and then he holds out a Krabby Patty. This is the best. So much nostalgia there. They, I've seen this with 
like classic TV shows and selling off like pieces of the set and things like that. I'm a big Seinfeld fan. A lot of that stuff is lost, but a lot of it still is out there either in the, it might be at like Warner Brothers or wherever else, just sitting in a back closet or in a warehouse somewhere. I don't know how long it takes that stuff to come into the market, but maybe the place has to go bankrupt. <laughs> like you said. Yeah. It all depends on the show. Like I some iconic. I think show. we're, I think we're losing your mic a little bit. I don't know if you, if it's moved away from you. Ah, uh, yeah. It was, oh, there moved, you go. It, was, nice. it was totally moved we'll, away from me. We'll equalize you. We can okay, probably get thanks. it back. What are we talking about? Oh, some shows like they immediately yeah. sell them like Breaking Bad and stuff like that. Like they make it a thing um, to sell that sort of stuff, but some you never even see it. Like Seinfeld, I know they kept the entire set and then reconstructed mm-hmm. it for a reunion episode. So I imagine they still have the whole Seinfeld set, but yeah, nuance depending on the shows. The other ones, the other animated things that sell for like a fortune, like we're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars. It's the uh, Miyazaki films, Studio Ghibli. It's a Totoro, Spirit Away. I don't know mm. what it is. Maybe it's like the Asian crowd, but good God, those people want that. Wow. And there's not that much of it either. But yeah, like the girl standing in the rain with the umbrella, it's selling for like the price of a Warhol. It's incredible. <laughs> so that's sort of like the upper echelon of where uh, the, that's the upside. There's all those uh, like YouTube kids shows too, that are like the most watched videos on YouTube. I'm thinking, I guess Bluey isn't on YouTube. I guess that's Netflix or something. But I know that show is like massively popular with kids, yeah. like really little kids. A lot of those but little, their parents little, also know that stuff, right? Yeah, it's, there's there's a lot of that stuff. Like Coco Melon and all giant YouTube series. All that's going to be created by AI in the future though. I think we talked about it at the top of this. But yeah, it's honestly weird time to be creating content because you don't know in eight years if there's going to be people doing it but who the hell knows <laughs> the we you talked last time a little bit about your some of your other collecting habits which include wine but you don't drink alcohol so these aren't wines that you're going to consume in the future but you still say that you own and you i guess continue to buy wine if you see something that interests you talk a little bit more about that because i think it's interesting in terms of like some of the intangibles like the value that we assign the assets based on just like cultural influence or maybe it's like a social thing you can gift it to somebody yeah share a little bit about why you keep buying wine yep similar to why i buy cards that i don't even collect it's i like the art i like the aesthetics i like the idea of collecting widely collected things and it's also good gift value can always give it away that makes a lot of sense. You were saying also you looked at it like art in a way. So is it more just an aesthetic, like you like the label or is it like, this is a cool bottle. I like the name where it's from like a cool year. Like what kind of drives you from the same? You know, it's not necessarily as pretty to look at as like a painting. Yeah, it, could be. It, could, it could be art. It could be story. It could be manufacturer. It could be person behind it. It could be collaboration. It could be any of the above. All depends on the specific bottle. You, or it could any be that it's a really good deal. And I saw these selling <laughs> for four years at $60 and now they're selling four for 60. And it's okay. Yeah, I should probably just get a case of that. Why not? Right? Yeah, nice. yeah. Did you, does wine ever come up in your conversations with any of the NBA guys that you're, you get to chat with occasionally? Some of those conversations were look pretty not, good. Not because, only because I don't drink. If I drank, mm. it's like <laughs> I don't collect or wear watches either. Like my theory on, on the reason I don't is I don't want to be a target. It's like, why would I ever wear a George Washington signature on my wrist? That's how I think about it. It's like, why would I wear a Rolex? It just makes me more of a target. And what's more important than my health and safety. So I think to, you know, that's separate, but with wine, obviously you're not wearing that on your wrist. (laughs) Not yet. You're not, but new project 2024. Yeah. I'm going to make wine watches. It's actually a pretty good name, but. Yeah, conversations don't come up just because I don't drink, but all those guys do. They love it. They're great NBA stories from like Amari Stoudemire bathing in wine towards the end of his career. There are some awesome stories. (laughs) Nice. You do wear like Takashi Murakami stuff. That's art. Yeah, love that stuff. Love that stuff. (laughs) Yeah. I I think last time you had a t-shirt on, maybe I think on our last episode, we weren't video then, but that got me down a rabbit hole of searching all kinds of Murakami clothing. I love Murakami. Murakami, Hearst, there are a few artists that I just love their clothing. And Mm -hmm. yeah, I feel differently about like the Murakami clothing than I do watches because I 
don't think that anybody's going to rob me at gunpoint for my shirt. Like, maybe. <laughs> is well, that a medium? There's only, yeah, it's like shoe size. There's only one way to find out, though. So if somebody <laughs> does, then I guess we'll have the answer. <laughs> I, it would, that would be the coolest wine label, like a Murakami wine label. There, I'm what's that producer? I'm surprised he's never done it because he did Perrier bottle uh, water bottles. Oh, yeah, he did. I saw those. Yeah. Let's see. I bet Who, he's is it that does, isn't there like a Warhol label? Like someone does a collaboration like thing. I don't know. Well, every year Mouton has a different famous artist, Mouton Rothschild, on yeah. their labels. It's possible he did one one year. There's a California producer that does this. I just forget who it is and what the artist, like who the collaborator is. I would be surprised. He did a Saki label. That makes sense. Yeah. Uh, I see. Are we talking about cool. Murakami or what are we talking about now? Murakami now, sorry. Okay. <laughs> so, I was talking yeah. about Warhol, but... <laughs> I Googled real quick. Yeah. Oh, those are actually look pretty cool. Maybe we'll what get is, them to yeah, do it. Yeah, look it up. What do I look up? Look up next five sake and then Murakami. Got it. Got it. Yeah, those are pretty cool. 2016, that's awesome. Oh, those are cool. Yeah, the box is better than the actual bottle. <laughs> I kind of like how clean the bottles are, though. That's nice. With the I'm not plain as... white? Yeah, I guess not as huge in Americami as you guys, and the colors are part of. I like the lines, but I don't like the colors as much. Always, gotcha. that's cool. Yeah. Might have to get one of those. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, have that on your shelf, and then drink the Perrier, and you'll be good to go. Nice. Earlier, you were talking about the reproducibility, and I think it was on the SpongeBob images, like how they're one on one, and they're super intricate, so they're hard to reproduce. That's the way it is. Like this juxtaposition between wine and whiskeys, and like other kind of rare spirits and things. Like wine is has been copied extensively and it's relatively easy to like make a almost passable bottle if you don't have documentation and things. But with some of these like really high end whiskeys, there are extremely rare gemstones and like intricate detailing on the bottles and packaging and things that, like you said, are just too expensive to replicate. They just don't make the scam <laughs> profitable. I think that's a, that's, that, I think it's interesting the different assets that have that component um, and their staying power. I think it's, yeah, I think it's key, especially early in an assets class life, like for you to be buying before it makes sense to scam. That's, it's an mm. interesting nuance of collecting anything and a case for buying high end stuff. Yeah. yeah what's yeah. the, like, what do you do authentic? authentication and like provenance on these assets is do they come with certificates or what kind of research goes into which is it all on who you buy if you buy yeah if you buy it from heritage are you just assume that it's legit yeah i wouldn't buy from an auction house unless like you personally authenticate it and that's why it's probably early Mm -hmm. and a barrier to entry for most people which is a good thing because there is stuff that comes off if i didn't know what i was doing i was just like if i was listening to this podcast and i heard me talk about it i would look online and i definitely i encourage nobody to buy anything without doing a lot of research because there is it's very easy to get tricked into buying a cell and thinking it's a production background, but it's not a production background. So yeah, I literally make sure that it's live paint. That's the first thing I do. And there are some ways that you can tell that. And then I match like the dots of the live paint to, I pull up the episode on my phone and I'm like looking at it side by side and photo matching each dot. It's impossible to replicate. Impossible. Yeah. With that type of paint, you would need to be a... You would need to be the guy that did it in the first place to be able to do it again. And that guy probably couldn't do it. Sure. That makes sense. It's huh. really cool. Oh. I have one last question here, a little bit more about your agency. Kind of what is, what is, what's your guys' core capacity capabilities? What do you guys, when did you launch? Tell us a little bit more. Yeah. I've been doing agency-esque work for a couple of years now, but officially brought it under one umbrella and brought on a team to help execute for a bunch of different brands. But it's mainly working with collectibles and sports companies to start turning their product or their brand into a media company. Because I believe that at the end of the day, every company should also be a media company, no matter what they do, because it basically does their marketing for them and builds their brand and awareness and allows them to create real community, which will benefit you whatever you do. So basically mm-hmm. taking everything I've learned personally with building Hoops Nation zero to seven million across social, building all these other platforms and having worked with a lot of creators and brands and things like that, applying all of those learnings over. So it's been a lot of fun. It's been it's been a good start, but excited to scale it over 2023. 
and take mm-hmm. advantage of AI tools and all that to benefit companies too. That's awesome. Yeah, we, it's incredible the number of people that message us because they listen to the podcast, but they have nothing to do with wine or investing. They're not like on our platform. They're like, what do you guys do? And they just heard our podcast because they were searching whatever the episode title might have brought them to. It's so, yeah, it's definitely a powerful tool for sure. Do, you said that you, like bringing in the AI tools, are you guys developing anything proprietary or are you just packaging like various tools and ways and like being able to bring them to companies that you work with? We have one thing, it's called Blip. That's one of our in-house new tools that nobody's really ever offered publicly before. If you go on my Instagram, it's one of the posts. It's We call them Blips. It's basically like avatars, a full body, and you can put them in any place. Oh, yeah. yeah. So we, we have those, and we can build them for anybody or any brand. We can create mascots and things like that. So it's a good, it's a good like bonus tool on the side that nobody else has access to. So we have that but also using all the tools that are out there because those are usually the best. Nice. Maybe we'll do one with Billy and I in, uh, in France. <laughs> in yeah, front of the DRC. Could definitely do it. It would be funny to have a wine bottle as a mascot for the company. With little, little uh, arms and... Yeah, um, yeah totally do that. <laughs> chart go up, green line go up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice. Well, like thanks, that. Buster. Sure. I think this, this is a good, I think, level set for the start to the new year in terms of just like getting people excited about technology and alternative asset spaces, collectibles, all the kinds of things that I think our company and obviously your interest touch. So thanks for sharing what you're thinking about and hopefully uh, give some people some cool ideas, things to look into. Hell yeah. It's going to be a crazy year. We'll do this again in uh, 2024. Nice. <laughs> awesome. Sounds good, Buster. Have a good rest of the week. We'll talk to you soon. Sounds good. To check out our current offerings and to sign up for the Vint platform, find us at www.vint.co. That's www.vint.co. For questions, comments, or feedback on the Vint podcast, please email us at support at vint.co. Vint and VV Markets are offering securities pursuant to Regulation A. Our offering circulars amended can be found on the SEC website. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Investments such as those on the Vint platform are speculative and involve substantial risks to consider before investing. We may provide communication that may contain certain forward-looking statements that are subject to various risks and uncertainties. Information provided in any communications, including this podcast, is not legal, business, or tax advice. All prospective investors should consult a legal, tax, or business advisor concerning the subject matter of any communications and any offering.